The Centre Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics and Knightsbridge Overland. This month's Center Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics. Commonwealth Classics is a direct importer of classic vehicles from Europe and South America and has a rotating collection of rare and unique vehicles in their showroom located in Virginia, just 45 minutes from Washington, D.C. Visit www.cwclassics.com to view their current inventory of classic vehicles. Thanks, Commonwealth Classics, for your continued support of the podcast. The Center Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Center Steer Podcast, podcast number 115 for October 2022. Center Steer is a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. I'm your host, John Costage. Joining me over Zoom is Morgan. Welcome, Morgan. Hello, thanks for having me as always. I hope everybody is, uh, at least here in Vermont, I'm enjoying this unseasonably warm weather mixed with the foliage, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Are you past peak on your leaves, deciduous leaves changing color? Yes, we are. Uh, It was probably about a week ago and then we had a bunch of rain and now it's like 75. It's nice to have unseasonably warm weather in Vermont right now, but I understand everybody else has had unseasonably warm weather and it's not so nice. The leaves here, the and it's the only time of year I get to use the word deciduous. I think that's correct, right? The leaves that change, the leaves that actually do change change color are deciduous trees. If I'm not mistaken, they're not the evergreens. Correct. It's the yes. only time you can use the word deciduous. Leaf changing was really great this year, especially in Western Pennsylvania. In fact, I had to drive up to. Cortland, uh, New York preview weekend of uh, the Jubilee that's coming up. We were doing some uh, meeting up there, checking out the site, New York and Western Pennsylvania, Eastern, excuse me, Eastern, Northeast Pennsylvania and central New York. Fantastic. It was a great time of year to. Yes. I had a, I had a work trip down to, uh, Newport, Rhode Island last weekend. And it was same kind of thing, driving through Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, all during the peak foliage. Cannot complain. Harold and Dixon are not able to join us this evening. They're off doing whatever it is Harold and Dixon do. I know Dixon said he was involved in a, I think, a board meeting for Placid Lassie. And for this podcast, we have two returning expedition and overlanders. First, it is Jan and Alec Foreman, who traveled 40,000 miles through 29 countries in 1977. You may recall they were on episode 44 of the podcast back in December of 2016. (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) i have to pause on that one (laughs) that's like talking about land rovers that go that you know go three digits fast on the speedometer just thinking about that that was episode 44 wow yeah and uh, they wrote a book called strangers like angels and jan and alec are back with their son charles they want to restore their historic and well-traveled series three and they tell us of their plans and how you can be a part of it and secondly is alex bescopy of last overland fame he was on episode 75 in july of 2019 wow that's what's that three years ago wow time time has no meaning anymore does it Uh, certainly over the last three years alex previews the book and tv show of the same name the last overland 
and it's about Oxford's triumphant return overland journey from Singapore. If you didn't know that by now, you, you it's probably the your first time listener to the podcast. Uh, go back to the annals of our podcast library and listen about Oxford and Oxford in America and first overland and now last overland. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate your support. Visit our website to see how you can support the podcast. You can do it as a Patreon supporter. You can buy a shirt or a sticker, buy us a tee, which is just like Patreon, but you get to choose the amount. And as a bonus for Patreon supporters, most guests answer our 10 questions, which is a quick fire question and answer round. And we post that exclusively for our Patreon listeners. And a special thanks to Bob of brown water fame. That's actually what we should call him now. Bob of brown water fame. He provided us with more brown water and commented for last month. It just doesn't get any better than this. Bruce and McKay and, and Mick Mike, uh, which is Mike McKay. They put it together. It's that's why I call Mick Mike, both legends. Thank you for bringing them together on your podcast, brown water all around. Thanks, Bob. Yes. Thanks, Bob. Here we go, Morgan. This is your monthly reminder <laughs> that 2013 excuse me, 2023, see, told you time, not having any meeting anymore, is Land Rover's <laughs> 75th anniversary. We're inviting all Land Rover owners to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In July of 2023, especially series and defender owners, you have, call it out, Morgan, how many months? Eight months. You are correct, sir. Eight short months. <laughs> they are short to get your Rover ready. <laughs> the problem is really most of them, around here are winter months which are not as productive and also the shortest month uh anarchs diamond jubilee will take place june 15th through the 18th in 2023 at greek peak mountain resort in Cortland, new york registration will open later in november so keep an eye out for that i'll be sure to announce it through the podcast we have we because i'm i guess on the anarch board we have a facebook group and a facebook page we are on Instagram, of course, all the other clubs will, will push out information as as it when it's officially announced. The anticipation is November fifteenth. That's the that's the planned announcement date. Uh, reg when registration will open for the event. And now for the news: Lower UK and Europe sales for JLR failed to offset China and North American gains. So lower sales in the UK and Europe failed to offset gains in China, and North America for JLR during its latest quarter. The automotive giant, which has UK operations in the Midlands and Northwest, has reported retail sales for the three months to end of September 2022 of 88,121 vehicles, an increase of 9,296 compared with the previous quarter ending in June. JLR added that compared to the first quarter, retail sales were higher in China, uh, North America, and overseas, but were lower in the UK and Europe. China was up 38%, North America up 27%, overseas up 14%, the UK was down 7%, and Europe was down 10%. Manufacturer also said that wholesale volumes were 75,307 cars in the period. That excludes its China joint venture. Uh, that's a four that's up 4% compared to the previous quarter. JLR said, quote, this improvement was lower than planned, primarily due to a lower than expected supply of specialized chips from one supplier, which could not be readily resourced in the quarter. This was mitigated partially by further prioritization of production to the highest margin products 
Range Rover. While new agreements with semiconductor suppliers are expected to enable sales improvements in the second half of the physical year, unquote. At least I assume it was a Range Rover. How could it not be? <laughs> well, the Defender, I think, is probably a high margin vehicle now. True. But still, I, I, you can crank up the Range Rover prices much higher than you can the Defender prices. And JLR went on to say the production ramp up of the new Range Rover and new Range Rover Sport improved with 13,537 cars in the quarter, up from 5,790 in the first quarter. Uh, that's a significant increase. It also said that it is expected to continue to improve in the second half of its financial year. As of the end of September 2022, the total order book has grown to 205,000 units. That's up 5,000 from the end of uh, from the end of June. So yeah, it looks like uh, from the end of June to the end of September, they now have a backlog of 205,000 units. So it's gone up 5,000 from the end of June to the end of September. And they uh, go on to say the demand for the new Range Rover, new Range Rover Sport and Defender remains strong, accounting for over 145,000 of those 205,000 orders. That's good. Yeah, that's that's really good. As long as they can, you know, get get the chips, which of course everybody is still struggling with and and hopefully they've manufactured enough green oval badges cuz I don't know if you heard about Ford, they have a whole bunch of vehicles stuck on in the lots because they don't have enough blue oval logos. Really? I did I did not hear that. And of course, you know, no self-respecting car manufacturer would ship their vehicles without logos. No, no. Well, that might explain my uncle ordered a new uh Ranger Ranger pickup and he's been waiting for it for months. So maybe that's part of the problem is they it's having didn't have enough badges for it. Right. He's almost 90 years old, been a car guy all his life, and he will only, only drive Fords. You don't get in between him and his Fords. That's 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 what he <laughs> that's what he drives. See, he did some racing back in the back in the 40s and 50s, and uh, he was a mechanic. Actually, a really interesting guy. I don't. I'm, all of a sudden, I've gone off on 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 that uh, that tangent. But he uh, he was a cryptographic service. Spent time in Korea during the end of the war. I don't, I don't know that I don't recall if there was fighting going on, but, uh, he was in Korea and wow. he's one of those guys who never, you, we didn't know about it until about 20 years ago. Never said a word, never said a word. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like barely even said he was in the military. Just thought I was overseas and he always hated planes. He would not fly. So when you mentioned Ford, I immediately think of my, I think of my uncle, uh, Jim, who, uh, a Ford guy, although he did have a blue and a red, uh, international scouts. I remember those back when I was a kid, he had two of those and they were, those were cool. Oh. Those are cool vehicles. I remember, remember riding in those at least one. I think those I think, are very cool. Yeah. I, one was a donor vehicle. I think so. <laughs> Cause apparently they <laughs> rusted like in five seconds. Uh, yeah. Well, moving on to the news, JLR North America has a new marketing chief, Charlotte blank. They have announced that Charlotte blank is its new chief marketing officer as the British automaker continues to electrify its entire fleet of vehicles. Uh, Miss Blank was previously director of transformation and analytics at the company, creating a new center of excellence overseeing organizational transformation, CRM, market research and data analytics to help drive JLR reimagined journey in North America. And Joe Eberhardt says, uh, who's the president and CEO of uh, JLR North America, uh, Charlotte is a highly experienced and transformational marketing leader with deep experience in leading brand and portfolio transformation. We welcome her leadership of the marketing operation as we reimagine the future of modern luxury, I'm emphasizing that, through our distinct global brands. In her role 
Uh, Ms. Blank will run the Mall One New Jersey-based JLR U.S. marketing strategy and operations, including a transformation analytics function. She will report directly to Eberhardt. Also, she's keeping she's she's uh, she's keeping the transformation analytics function and uh, and adding in the marketing chief function. Interesting. That's that's a pretty yeah, well a very good combination because these days marketing is very much about analytics <laughs> especially so much of the marketing is is digital online marketing and that's targeting specific audiences and yeah she did work for general motors for a period of time she was in the marketing arm uh, they didn't say where but she at least has some previous automotive experience cool congrats to her Next, consider Land Rover's Destination Defender and upmarket Jeep Fest. I love the title, so that's why we had to do this one. This is from Top Speed. <laughs> For those who prefer Bordeaux over Bush Light and Mozart to Molly Hatchet, Land Rover will debut Destination Defender, a gathering of Defender owners and enthusiasts for a modern outdoor lifestyle weekend, November 12th through the 13th in Sagarettes, or Sagarettes, I'm not sure how you say that, New York. Consider it Jeep Fest or Jeep Beach with perhaps less debauchery and a clientele that is less likely to be hosing off beer-laced vomit from their campgrounds. <laughs> uh, Land Rover states guests will experience Defender-centric adventure activities, classic Defender model displays, vendors with an array of the automaker's swag and overnight camping glamping at the festival grounds. The event will also serve as a host for the Defender Service Awards celebration on November 12th. Featuring dinner, live music, special guest appearances, and the announcement of award winners for U.S. and Canadian organizations making a difference in their communities. A total of $125,000 will be donated, and each of the five winning organizations in each category will receive a new Defender 130 model. There's a VIP weekend and one-day passes are available. Uh, one-day passes start at $50, while those who want to go all, all out can spring for the VIP experience with full access to the grounds throughout the weekend and preferential access to activities and experiences. Didn't see a cost for the VIP, but they only gave a price for the one-day pass. That sounds, sounds like fun. It's certainly... <laughs> You know, quite the opposite from <laughs> from the like Easter Jeep Safari or something like that, which is usually that's what Moab usually. I think there's something around Moab. I think there's I think they also do something up in the Pacific Northwest, too, don't they? It's not the uh, the the uh, Rubicon, the Rubicon Trail, right? Right, right. It sounds like a nice uh, activity combined with them announcing their service award winners, which I think is a, is a good idea. Cause in the past they've just announced them. A little bit of glamping is, is probably not a bad thing for November in New York state. They better have heaters. Yes. Yes. Well, and of, and of course anybody, you know, come winter romp is welcome to camp in Maine if they prefer, but you know, you don't have to. Except uh, the VIP experience. There's a little different. Considerably. Yes. Next. I'm going to read this entire article because I found it fascinating, even though there's it's involved, it involves defects and it involves lawyers. Jaguar responds to claims of defective defender windshields. Although I actually got the title wrong because technically it's JLR North America, but JLR North America has filed a response to the class action lawsuit alleging the 2020 and 2022 Defender vehicles contain defective windshields. The vehicle manufacturer argues in that in the U.S. District Court of New Jersey should dismiss a complaint for a number of reasons, including that the complaint does not actually identify a specific defect. According to the court documents, 
Plaintiffs allege that Land Rover knew that defenders contained one or more defects in the way vehicles are manufactured and or made that can cause the windshield to crack, chip, and or fracture. According to the complaint filed by the plaintiffs, Land Rover would have known of the alleged defect through pre-production testing, pre-production design, failure, failure mode, and analysis data, production design failure mode and analysis data, early consumer complaints, and more. The, the plaintiffs propose the alleged issue results from the usage of deficient materials in the construction of the windshield or deficiency in the structure of the vehicle. The lawsuit alleges that Land Rover will not cover the repair or replacement of, of those windshields under warranty and that replaced windshields are also defective. Little, that's my, my emphasis added there. In October, JAG, uh, JLR filed its response with a court arguing that all claims should be dismissed. Quote, first, the complaint does not identify defects. At most, it identifies symptoms of some uh, unintended ob defect, but the alleged windshield cracks are also consistent with a non-defective windshield. This failure to identify defect is fatal to all the plaintiff's claims, unquote. Uh, JLR says the plaintiffs claim their windshields cracked, at which time they make the unsupported leap that the windshields must not have been strong enough due to defect materials, deficient materials, excuse me, or a deficiency in the structure of the class vehicles. In addressing the allegation of statutory fraud, JLR says plaintiff's claims do not address the who, what, when, where, and why an alleged fraud and sh uh, of the alleged fraud and should therefore be dismissed per court precedent. Additionally, JLR argues that plaintiff's claims also lack specificity with respect to the allegation that Land Rover failed to inform customers of the reported issue. JLR says, quote, plaintiffs do not identify any source of information that should have contained the disclosure they seek, unquote. Continuing its argument, we're about done. JLR says the allegations regarding the pre-release testing data and more are not supported by asserted facts. And the vehicle manufacturer tells the court that the limited warranty does not include damage caused by objects striking the windshield, nor does it cover damage caused by design defects. <laughs> yes, heavy emphasis added by me. So let me see. The warranty doesn't cause an object striking the windshield. I can kind of see that. Okay. But the warranty doesn't cause damage caused by a design defect. Then why do we have a warranty? Yeah. Warranty only covers a defective part, not a bad design. That seems. But the part is not defective because something struck it and there's, there's certainly no design element. There's no design problem. There's no deficient materials. <laughs> and of course, this is when I get to bring up and too bad Dixon's not here. Five windshields on the, the Freelander five, five, five. Those were covered under warranty. I had to pay for one. I think four got covered under warranty. I think it was after like the second one, I figured it out. If you use the heated windscreen and turn that on, I think it expanded. I, I this is my my supposition that the heat caused it to expand, and then the, the cavity wasn't big enough, and it popped because it always cracked in the top, right above the rearview mirror, right in the middle. Ooh, gotcha. That's where they learned their lesson and decided to not cover no, windshield repair. Right. That was the that was their answer. <laughs> yes, we have defective windshields, so what? Whoops, not cover them. All right, let's move on. The world's whitest paint can now be used to naturally cool cars and planes. So last year, we, and that is Gizmodo, uh, reported on the research being done at Purdue to develop a white paint with extreme reflectivity, which has actually been many years in the making. In the fall of 2020, the team successfully developed a white paint that's able to reflect 95.5% of light. And just a few months later, uh, they bested that the new paint formulation that could reflect up to 98.1% of light. 
The whitest paint, paints that are currently commercially available only reflect about 80 to 90% of light, which means they're absorbing 10 to 20% of it. And we all know from regrettable summer wardrobe choices that reducing light and heat absorption is a big part of keeping cool when it's hot out. And there's some technical stuff in here about the different kinds of paint, but uh, skip to the, I guess this, this paragraph. In a paper recently published in the Cell Reports Physical Science Journal, it was revealed that using hexagon boron nitrate, a substance mostly used in lubricants instead of barium sulfite, resulted in a white paint with 97.9% solar reflectance from an application thickness of just 0.15 millimeters. The new formulation was also, was also highly porous and weighed 80% less than the previous paint made from barium sulfite while achieving nearly the same amount of light reflectance. In that article early on, it said that the barium sulfite, they had to put it on very thick. Uh, I'm trying to find that number. Oh, 0.4 millimeters thick, which apparently is very heavy. You can only put that on houses effectively because uh, it wasn't didn't make sense to put on a car, which is lighter. And of course, you want uh, you want less weight on a car. So apparently this new hexagon boron nitrate so that might be cool. Say, Harold, this is there's a reason, good reason for white paint. Yeah, and and of course, Harold has a white one thirty. Yes, he does. He does now have a white one thirty. That's right. That's right. I know it's not his preferred color, but yes, uh, you know, reflecting some of that extra heat that we've got around right now, you know, it's not a bad idea. And and to the weight, uh, well, thickness and weight. Uh, my guess is part of. You don't want to add that much weight to a vehicle because the entire vehicle is covered in paint. But my guess is part of it also has to do with the flexibility of the paint because automotive body panels tend to flex a bit. And the thicker you paint, the more likely it is to crack. Oh, vehicles are designed to flex, period. That's the they need to to go over different surfaces, especially Land Rovers going over rougher surfaces. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, the Land Rovers have... The, at least the current generation of Land Rovers have some of the most rigid bodies of <laughs> vehicles out there. It's not like a, you know, a traditional pickup truck with a C-channel frame that, you know, flexes <laughs> significantly. And most people don't realize how thin the layers of paint are on vehicles. You generally have most of it is primer. Then you've got like a fairly thin coat of the actual color paint. Then maybe you've got some some flex, and then the rest is all like clear coat. What I would have liked to have seen in this article they didn't mention was put it on a vehicle and then do the comparison between, uh, say, standard paint, this paint, and then tell me what is the temperature inside. I realize you know, maybe some of that's just gl is glass, really. So further thinking about it here out loud, yeah, maybe it's all it's mostly probably the glass than it is the actual uh, painted surface. Because that's you know glass lets lets in a lot of that heat does and and you know with the the trend that Land Rover is certainly a part of of having the you know sort of panoramic glass roofs that lets in a lot more heat now most of those like the at least the roof panoramic roof glass has very high um, UV protection in it compared to like your your windscreen and 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 rear window and and side glass but but yeah it's still <laughs> that is most likely where the majority of the heat comes in good old greenhouse effect 
All right, let's move on to this alternative to rubber could transform how, how tires are made. Tire company Bridgestone has been researching and studying. Oh, I'm going to get the word wrong here. They even tell you how to say it. It is, it's spelled G-U-A-Y-U-L-E. It's pronounced Y-U-L-E, although it looks like Gual. Uh, Guayul, or or uh, for you Stargate SG One fans out there, it looks like I, I want to say Guauld. <laughs> Let's see if I can say this now. I'll say it correctly. Uh, Bridgestone has been researching and studying Guauli production on a commercial scale. Bridgestone plans to invest another forty-two million dollars towards operations to expand the program. Guauli, grown in North America, faces no transoceanic supply chain issues. It is far less labor-intensive than Hevia to grow and harvest, and gives farmers a low water use and a naturally pest-resistant local crop. That makes it a compelling alternative as water allocations get slashed in face of uh, climate change, aerification, and, and mega droughts which has dropped lake levels along the Colorado River to store lows. And since Wyoli grows in areas too hot and dry for most farming, it doesn't displace food crops. Bridgestone aims to sell tires with Wyoli rubber by 2030 and already started tire testing in the most venerable of laboratories, IndyCar Racing. Nice. Apparently it's a seed from a plant. Yeah, because there's there's just so much. <laughs> I mean, ever since the discovery of, of the rubber plant... <laughs> and the rubber it produces mm -hmm. uh it's been a bit of a process to to get that rubber interesting that they have something that will especially work here in north america to grow they have a nice chart here about what's in a tire so apparently figures vary particularly with a mix of natural versus synthetic rubber high load trucks tires use more natural rubber while passenger car and racing tires have less so uh, natural rubber, which is the heavier or Wiley, did I say that right? Is 28%. Synthetic rubber, which is engineer petrochemical, 23%. Fillers, carbon black silica, 26%. Steel, uh, that's the belts and beaded wires, 15%. Miscellaneous chemicals, 5%. And textiles, 3%. Yeah, and, you know, some of the uh, series Land Rover owners might understand the differences be between you know the traditional rubber which is generally used for like bushings and stuff like that uh which are a much harder much longer lasting rubber than you know at this point yeah they'll, they'll usually use a modern chemical compound for bushings and stuff uh which just don't last as long but you get a much softer ride until they wear out uh so that's why you know commercial vehicles tend to use more of the natural rubber versus you know the synthetic rubbers in more civilian vehicles type situations where a smoother ride is is preferred over longevity of the tire all right next up the enos grenadier starts production and this is from jalopnik so you, you know it's got attitude it's been about five years since b-tier brosnan era bond villain jim ratcliffe announced plans <laughs> to build his own version of the ancient ancient land rover defender the enos grenadier is now officially in production according to motor one uh built at a former mercedes-benz factory in france the grenadier really does appear to be an off-road enthusiast dream it's true body on frame suv with the u.s version getting full-time four-wheel drive, live front and rear axles, locking center differential, 
different modes for off-roading and wading through water, front and rear skid plates, steel wheels, and several other adventure-friendly features. Customers who want something even more rugged can upgrade to the Trail Master Edition. It is the first time we've heard about uh, different like trim levels. So the Trail Master Edition, that adds, among other things, a snorkel, a ladder, auxiliary battery, and an oh-so-important branded jacket. The optional rough pack <laughs> adds locking front and rear differentials, all-terrain KO2 tires, while the luxury-oriented smooth pack throws in stuff like a backup camera, puddle lights, ambient interior lighting, heated mirrors, heated windshield, heated windshield washer fluid nozzles, which actually are not as luxury as you think they are. Uh, that's so then there's also a field master edition power comes from a BMW source three liter inline six that makes 282 horsepower, 332 pound feet of torque. Sadly, there's no manual transmission. The Grenadier only gets an eight speed ZF automatic us pricing has yet to be announced, but expects to be surprisingly reasonable in the UK. The most basic Grenadier starts at 49,000 pounds but the cheapest edition that will be coming to the U.S. starts at 52,000 pounds. And they say that's about in line with the base price of a Defender 90 in the U.K. So doing some rough back-of-the-napkin math, expect the base version to start around $55,000. In the U.K. only, though, Enos estimates it will begin delivering Grenadiers to customers in December. They do not yet have a date for U.S. customers. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Next year. It's, but it's interesting. It's like basically around the price of a Defender. So I guess some of the discussion had, at least on the new Defender, had been, it's expensive. Well, now, and and, you, and people, people have been saying, why can't they have just done like Jeep did and make a modern version of the same tr truck virtually? Well, that seems like that's what Grenadier is kind of doing. Guess what? It's the same price. So, yeah, I mean, that's not everything, of course, in the Defender and the Defender name, but, you know, it's just, right. it's, it's just interesting. You think it would be, you know, even 10 grand cheaper, but nope. Well, and, and I think part of it, too, of course, is that, that we all would have loved to have a modernized Defender and it to remain a Defender uh, with all the same features, but that's not. Land Rover's target market anymore. And as I've said previously, they didn't do it when they could. So yep. some decision was made at some, by someone somewhere, maybe repeatedly to not invest in the truck much. You look at my 1987, you look at a 2016, <laughs> you'll be hard pressed. I think the casual non, let's say, let's say the non Land Rover enthusiast, I think would be, would go, yeah, the same vehicle. Yeah, definitely. I was out yesterday, uh, actually at, at the, at my local brewery and they, and there was a really nice Ford Mustang from the seventies, like just sharp looking car. And then they, they were Ooh. guessing what year it was. And then they, and, and I, I could hear them in earshot, but they came over to me and said, so what's your, your vehicle? I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad you're asking me about mine. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I, I, I told them they were taking bets at the table. There's like three or four of them. And I, the guesses were 1930s, I think a 50s and I think a 70s, somewhere in there. It's like three of them. And I was like, nope, 87. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, well, you know, there you go. What are they using? The price is right rules? Can't guess over? Closest without going over? I'm, I'm not sure what yeah. happened there. Yeah, honestly. I, yeah, well, then, and then they made, they made the fatal mistake of asking me about more about my truck. And so I spent 20 minutes. Good. They, they earned it. <laughs> about 20, 25 year rules and you know, all that, all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Next we have this uh, three articles kind of go together. 
First up is Land Rover Trek, not for the faint of heart. This article, and then there's also a video following it, uh, but this is one, I'm not going to read you this article, but if you want to know, well, I should read the intro. That's what I should do. It sounds so easy uh, sitting at home. Head to Jaguar Land Rover's head office in New Jersey, pick up a fully dudded limited edition Defender 110 and head off-roading. For someone who embraces a sedentary lifestyle, the three-kilometer run that included a hill climb, balance beam, lugging 20-liter water barrels and clambering over a 1.5-meter wooden wall, it was a rude awakening, and this task was just to get the blood pumping. It's part of something called Trek, an exercise used by Land Rover to teach dealer, personnel, teamwork, and problem-solving skills while experiencing the ability and versatility of the vehicles they sell. The event takes place over a grueling 24-hour period that includes camping and a cookout. Of course, as the brain tire, so does the ability to think logically, which made the tricky tasks more difficult and a test of perseverance. And then the article goes on. This was written uh, uh, by a Canadian uh, on uh, from driving.ca. So if you want to know more about the Trek competition, you can read that and the art and the activities that take place. And then there's also companion to that because they, the fast lane also competed in that uh, Trek challenge, Defender Off-Road Challenge. And except this is a video they put together and it's about 13 minutes. And so you can, not only can you read about the activities, you can see what the activities were. And it's not all driving either. It's uh, there's, as the, as the you, I read earlier, there's some physical uh, challenges to it. Yes, they try to make it like a very, very slimmed down miniature, much simpler camel trophy type yeah 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 <laughs> or i think maybe more g4 is probably the well maybe no maybe you're right maybe is more because the, the camel trophy was very much like you start with all the physical activities and then you have the driving activities and then you they send them off right it's just <laughs> condensed down to a 24-hour event instead of these were also media types so they were not necessarily they weren't like bill burke all primed to uh, to go off and, and do all these challenges. Right. Yeah. And then there was also the defender trophy and which is the, this takes place also in uh, North America. It looks like it takes place on the same property. They do the same things. Uh, and, but if you want to read about that, uh, I recommend you go out and do that. And that was the, I think that's the one where if you buy the defender trophy vehicle, then you get to go on to the, this defender trophy challenge, but they had some vehicles held back that then they let some automotive journalists uh, take on the journey. This is the one where the, I love the sand glow or, or at least reminiscent of sand glow paint. And it has defender trophy on the side, but the white bonnet still, no. What, what were you doing Land Rover? That just is not a good look. It's just not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I just can't understand because the rest of the top of the vehicle is blacked out. Yeah. So if they were trying to do something to like, you know, like we discussed earlier with the white paint, you know, reduce temperatures or something, then you wouldn't black out the roof and the pillars like and the blacks yeah, to reduce glare from the sun so one good thing about this did you see this and in, in, in here this uh, picture where this one getting air that's a great photo isn't it that is that yes is. Uh, so yeah listeners go out to of course we'll link in the show notes this is the the story this one is the 2023 land rover defender trophy story and the second photo down good photo you can you can see the skid plating that's on the bottom there this one has the winch and the tires are spinning that's a that's a cool photo right there. That's one to put on the wall. Yeah, definitely. And and that's actually a, um, an interesting comparison to the Trek event um, because these are relatively stock vehicles from Land Rover. Their off roading package and you know winch 
packet uh, package and all of that. Uh, whereas the Trek vehicles are all outfitted by um, Lucky Eight. Yes, Lucky Eight. Thank you. Shout out to Justin um, and Lucky so, Eight team there. Yes. Yeah. So they've got you know lift kits, larger tires you know actual uh bull bar sort of setups and, I think and extra skid plating too, I think. And, yeah <laughs> so they're fully kitted out and next land rover range rover evoke 2023 review but this is the PHEV, and this is from Australia, and this is from Australia, the Evoke HSE P300E. It's a plug-in hybrid, notably only available in the top trim level with top shelf performance too. It is the right car to represent Range Rover's entry level model at a critical time and technological transformation, question mark. Let's take a look. So they have a long article, read just a bit of it. While we're on the top of excess, the Evoke HSE P300E certainly reflects it in the price. The plug-in starts from a whopping $105,000 Australian, uh, putting it in the same league as luxury PHEV rivals a full size up. Because there are no small luxury segment, small SUVs, that's the sentence, because there are no small luxury segments, small SUVs in the, in the league currently, they're forced to compare the Evoke to cars like the uh, Volvo XC60 Recharge. That's $100,000 Australian. The BMW X3 xDrive is $107,000 Australian. And a particularly good value, the Lexus NX 4, uh, 450h, and that's $88,000 Australian. As I said, they go on to talk about the interior, the exterior, the ride, uh, the engine, and I think uh, the you know, storage and in the drivetrain section, I wanted to read this. The Evoke now sports JLR's hybridized Ingenium engine family across the range. And the setup, which appears in the uh, plug-in hybrid model, might be the most interesting. It consists of 1.5-liter three-cylinder combustion engine, which is said to produce uh, 147 kilowatts. That is KW's kilowatts, right? Uh, yes. And the electric motor powering the rear axle, producing 80 kilowatts and two of which combined for an impressive quoted total output of 227 kilowatts driving all four wheels. So there's an electric motor in the rear, and that looks like there's a combustion engine in the front based on when I'm reading that. The motor sources its power from 15 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery pack under the floor, which provides a claimed 62 kilometer of fully electric driving range. Land Rover also replaced the mechanical brake pedal with a drive-by wire one to allow for improved blended regenerative braking. And they said they go on to talk about ownership and safety. And so if that's uh, driving it, if it's something that interests you, you may want to go ahead and check that article and we will finish up with the verdict. The Range Rover Evoke is more highly specified and more luxurious than ever. And this plug-in hybrid version makes the most of what's on offer with its slick but familiar feel from behind the wheel. Unfortunately, it does have an eye-watering price tag to go with a classy design and the options list is, is, a, is a bit rude. Sounds like, very Australian. All things considered, uh, but the core offering is a solid luxury buy for city slickers nonetheless. What makes the Evoke P300E stand out for me is its impressive EV driving range, excellent charging specs, which make it convenient as possible to make the most of its electrified features. It's up to the buyer whether these conveniences and the Range Rover badge are worth swapping into a car a full size down from its luxury plug-in rivals for the same money. One of the things that is really interesting to me is uh, I probably just haven't been paying attention to the Evoke enough, uh, and that is that they're using the three-cylinder. Did you catch that? Yeah, it's it's funny. There's been quite a resurgence of the three-cylinder engine in the last 
couple of years, basically because at this point we can push the performance out of them. But yeah, you know, the the PHEV in the Evoke actually makes a lot of a sense, a lot of sense because, you know, it is even smaller vehicle, so lighter, probably more aerodynamic uh, than the larger Range Rovers. Um, so you get a pretty good electric only range out of it and probably more prone to around the town driving than than its larger brethren and also you're probably in country you know not 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 america not australia where smaller vehicles might be more prevalent right the 2023 Range Rover Sport passes the plug-in vibe check. 2023 Range Rover Sport. So like the Range Rover, the design of the Range Rover Sport follows a less is more philosophy. The exterior looks like it was hewn from a single solid, while the interior continues the clean, crisp look we've come to expect from Land Rover. The Sport nails it with retractable door handles, thin bands of LED headlights, as few cut lines as possible, and a slight wedge as it heals that gets capped by tall, thin LED lights. With no more third-row seat on its option list, the 2023 Range Rover Sport makes the most of its uh, 194.7 inches overall length. Uh, that's 4.2 inches less than the full-size Range Rover. 118-inch wheelbase. That's uh, identical wheelbase to the full-size Range Rover. The front seats have, at a minimum, 20 ways of adjustment and real leather upholstery to go with the almost three and a half feet of legroom. Repeat that. Front seats have almost three and a half feet of legroom. <laughs> it's five, that's fun, that's a fascinating stat. The Range Rover Sport P530 first edition, available in the 2023 model year only, comes equipped with a 4.4 liter twin turbocharged V8, good for 523 horsepower, 535, no, 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 553 pound feet of torque, or enough for zero to 60 in acceleration, 4.3 seconds. <laughs> It's delightful as usual with a, a roarty soundtrack and, and muscular appeal, and it carries a tow rating of up to 7,716 pounds. Regardless of the grade, the Sport comes with air suspension, adaptive dampers and terrain response controls, even enables a luxurious experience on remote trails. New on this generation of Range Rover Sport is adaptive cruise control for off-roading. I'd like to repeat that. Adaptive cruise control for off-roading. And I have to ask, this is a, as I pause the podcast and reading this, why? If you're going off-roading, do you really? <laughs> like, adaptive cruise control for off-roading. Really? I, it, it just, I'm sorry, that makes no sense to me. None. It, uh, maybe if you were in the military or you had some other application, you were, I, 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 I'm go, if I'm going off-roading, aren't you trying to challenge yourself in your vehicle to make sure you can do certain things? I, I don't I don't get adaptive cruise control. I I, I don't get cruise control off road. I don't get adaptive cruise control. <laughs> okay, I've 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 oh in my rant. Yeah, it's it's for your whole convoy of Range Rover Sports. You know, off roading, you use the adaptive cruise control, and then none of you have to know how to have even throttle control over bumpy terrain. Okay. The driver has four <laughs> settings to choose from, each of which maintains a suitable speed while off-roading and enables the driver to fully focus on steering. That's what the article says. I, no, I want to control. Okay, I, I know. Let it go, John. Let it go. Moving on. And this is the end. At the top end, the $122,850 US P530 gets almost all these touches as well as a swell V8. It's a one 
year act only to be followed up with an all-electric Range Rover Sport. When it gets that battery implant, the powertrain will match its already alluring vibe. Aside from the adaptive off-road cruise control, which, of course, what respecting Range Rover Sport owner is going to go off-road? Let's let that go. But yet you have the option. Doesn't matter. Let's move on from it, John. Let it go. This is the last time they're putting a V8 in this thing. So if you want a, your Sport to have an internal combustion engine in America, you got to get it now. Yeah. What did you say? It was four, four point what? <laughs> How many seconds? 4.3 acceleration. There... 4.3. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why you need off-road cruise control so that it doesn't, you don't bang into the vehicle in front of you because it gets, no, no. Okay. Let it go, John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably. 2023 Land Rover, Range Rover. This is the SUV of the year from Motor Trend. They have a full review of it uh, that came out. And for Motor, as I said, for Motor Trend, you can read that if you are in the in in the market. You may want to read it. Uh, I'm just going to read you the pros and cons. Pro looks expensive. Pro smells expensive. <laughs> There's a whole thing about smells. Uh, pro performs as a Range Rover should. Cons it is expensive. Cons closely resembles the old one. Cons. Base engine, not nearly as nice as the optional one. Those cons sound quite normal. <laughs> they do. Usually someone wants the vehicle to resemble the old one. And usually the base engine is not nearly ni as nice as the optional one. And for a Range Rover, they're usually expensive. All that explains Range Rover right there. It's expensive. It looks like the old one. And if you if you want the better engine, you're going to have to pay even more money. And then I like I, I've liked these various things. We've seen them before from Carwile. Matt Watson. Uh, he did a comparison, and I enjoyed this one between the uh, new Range Rover V8 and the Bentley Bentayaga. And they did uh, they call it the off road battle. I think it's about 16 minutes. It's interesting. I mean, they're not doing anything super challenging. Certainly, they're not going through any mud or rock crawling. But just, you know, there's some, a uh, little bit of off camber. There's a couple hill climbs. Uh, there's a kind of a neat one going downhill and and uh, going in low range. Um, so you might want to check that out. I thought that was cool to see. I like that one. And then for you Defender owners, Land Rover Defender, the new one, can now be equipped with ballistic and blast protection. Land Rover Defender buyers who are after upgraded protection for their four-wheel drive vehicle, now have the option, thanks to new lightweight solution, a new agreement between JLR and vehicle protection specialist Trasco has resulted in an upgraded version of the Defender being made available. The 110 specification car can now be fitted with a lightweight anti-kidnap, or AK, AKIP, sorry, AKIP conversion kit. But thanks to an inconspicuous design, it's barely noticeable against the standard car. Lightweight, security-grade steel, glass, and composite materials are incorporated throughout the Defender, bringing added protection to driver and passengers. Various levels of ballistic protection certified by the VPAM standard for armored cars featured in all areas such as windscreen, door, door glass, and footwells. There's also a new ballistic rear partition. And there's more, just a little bit more you can read about it. And they have a couple pictures, which we assume to be the Defender protection vehicle, and it looks no different than normal protection. But did you notice, Morgan, no indication of price? I did notice that. I assume that this is for people who really need that sort of protection. Don't have to worry about price. Yeah, I think if you need that protection, you're, you're not worried about the cost of the vehicle, let alone the upgraded protection. Exactly. And I have a feeling that some of their target market is Bond villains. <laughs> <laughs> 
So does, does Jalopnik think that uh, Ratcliffe will, will buy one then? Is that it? <laughs> As there, we'll, we'll call back. And next, this custom Land Rover Defender is inspired by the iconic Chinook helicopter. It's just, it is cool looking. It, I When I first saw the picture, there's a couple of pictures. It looks like a Series 3 to me, but you then look closer and you're like, oh, it's actually is a Defender, but it looks kind of like a Series 3. Yeah, it's, it's tasteful. Uh, British customizing firm Technic built the specially commissioned Q40. It's a 2013 Defender 110 in honor of one of the Royal Air Force's longest serving aircraft. Though anyone who's seen a, who's ever seen a Vietnam War movie will recognize the Boeing-made Chinook CH-47's distinct twin rotor design. A, this is a graphic representation of which was depicted through the swirling grid painted over the Defender's rear, which is actually it, it looks like a, a, a it looks like a cab version, but with the flat sides. I guess, well, that's more like a commercial version, I guess, commercial version. And that's where they put the double whirl, the double swirls that kind of look like two blades intersecting. That's pretty cool. The Technic also equipped a handful of mechanical upgrades with a new ride-improving chassis that borrows from the company's classic racing department, programmable dampers, upgraded push bars, six-piston brakes, a 2.3-liter turbo a four cylinder from a Ford Mustang that sends 307 horsepower <laughs> through a bolstered six beat transmission. Oh, geez. The, the buyer who, uh, of this paid just over $154,000 us, but they paid it in British pounds, but it was equivalent to $154,000. Apparently a one-off cool looking. Yeah. And actually just in time for Christmas, if you, want to get your uh, kid a Land Rover, you have the option now of getting them into Land Rovers with a junior car Land Rover. Your kid is asking for something big for this Christmas, so don't disappoint him. Half scale Series 2A would be perfect and it costs just a hair more than a 2022 Nissan Versa. The boxy old school aesthetic are, are spot on and it gets even a modern 1.2 kilowatt 48 volt electric powertrain that launches it to 25 miles per hour. Features like ventilated disc brakes, dual mirrors, round headlights. That's a feature? I guess it is. Uh, painted wheels. They actually do look pretty good, although they're the wrong color. A 500-pound payload capacity makes it truly desirable, and you can even add leather seats, special paint, and a full-size tire. I think they did a nice job. Yeah, definitely. They do note, for those less skilled in the art of driving, a speed limiter can be added to keep the <laughs> keep things in, to a tepid five miles per hour. Yay. Which... You know, uh, yeah, they did, they did not list what the zero to 60 is for this, but yeah, it looks fun. I suspect that it would accelerate zero to 60 faster than a, than a comparable 2A. Oh, easily. I think so. Yes. I think this one would go, yes. And in fact, it might, it, it might even beat my Defender, I suspect. Yeah, now we'll, we'll have to see, uh, <laughs> well... You obviously can't do a zero to 60 with the five mile per hour limiter, but my guess is that, you know, it can get to the five miles per hour much faster as well. Um, it, maybe we do zero <laughs> to 25 since that it does yeah. have a, or maybe zero to 20. Uh, the cost is $17,000. Yeah. And there, there are some other brands out there. Uh, I'm familiar with Toylander as well. Some of those you can buy as kits, you know, if you don't, want the fully assembled one and you want to play with the drivetrain yourself but yeah it's it looks fun 
And as always, if you purchase any sort of Land Rover and you wish uh, for it to be tested in any capacity, we do provide that service here at the podcast, whether in Vermont or in Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll be happy to, to test out your brand new electric toy full-size Land Rover. It's a service we provide free, free. We'll be ha happily drive it around for free. The perks of being a listener. And finally, Land Rover Defender stunt vehicles uh, from No Time to Die sell for big bucks at auction. The movie star Defenders recently sold for a combined total of 352,000 pounds, which is about $383,000, at Christie's 60 Years of James Bond auction. Two vehicles were sold at the auction, one of them being an actual stunt car from the movie. The specially modified uh, Defender 110 is one of 10 vehicles used during filming and sport a unique 007 VIN. It was snapped up for 189,000 pounds, about $206,000, which is nearly twice the price of a brand new Range Rover. Thankfully, all for a good cause, the money raised will go towards the British Red Cross. Another Defender was also put up for sale, a 110 V8 created by SV Bespoke. Uh, inspired by the movie itself, just 300 examples of the Bond edition were made for global consumption. But this particular model boasts a 60 years of Bond logo on the exterior trim. This rare iteration of the 110 sold for 163,000 pounds, about $178,000. And the funds will go toward Tusk, a, ch a charity that protects endangered species across Africa. So then, of course, they have all sorts of cool photos of... Of, of the Defender when it was uh, being filmed for the movie. And I remind you, they did this, they filmed all these before the Defender was officially released. Yeah. My recollection is the the release was supposed to be timed with the movie coming out. And then I think the pandemic happened and... Yeah, and the movie got delayed. So I think the actual, you know, production vehicles came to market before the movie came out, but the movie contains vehicles that were pre-production. Right, that's yeah. right. They were that's it. They were pre-production cars, right? And then yeah, by then they had made what? I think by the time it, the movie came out, they had they were, they were about 6-8 months into production. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So again, if you uh if you have one of those, we're happy to happy to test that. But that's the news for October 2022. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers help protect your classic Land Rover. Whether you're on the trail or cruising around town, they're the perfect solution for protecting your pristine Land Rover seats or to cover up your well-worn and aged seats. Each seat cover is hand-cut and sewn in the USA for a custom fit that looks like it's straight from the factory. Every seat cover is crafted using durable 600 denier Cordera material. It's waterproof, oil, and dust-resistant. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are designed to be extremely comfortable and help keep you warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer while providing protection against mud, dirt, grime, and more. And I can attest to this, especially keeping you cooler in the summer. Because before I had the seats on, I swear my heated seats were turned on even in the summer. And I'm like, no, 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 it's just the seats used to retain so much heat, but the covers reflecting some of the heat. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are available for most classic Land Rovers, including Series, Defender, Discovery, and Range Rover. Select the Knightsbridge Overland seat cover that's right for your Rover. Available in both tactical and non-tactical versions in four colors, black, tan, mocha, and gray. I suggest the Mocha. That's what's in my 110. Our tactical seat covers include military-grade Molly webbing that accommodates pouches, weapons, tools, first aid kits, and more. Non-tactical seat cover feature three handy pockets for much-needed extra storage in your Land Rover. Visit KnightsbridgeOverland.com and enter Steer 10 at checkout for 10% off your Knightsbridge Overland seat cover order. That's KnightsbridgeOverland.com. Enter Steer 10 for 10% off your order. Protect and enhance your Land Rover seats with Knightsbridge Overland. 
So it was back in 2016, the last time we talked to Jan and Alec Foreman, who had made a an epic overland journey back in 1977, which is when Star Wars came out, by the way. Just don't want to throw that out. I was 10 years old at the time. Kind of an important year in my life. Uh, but we <laughs> but we talked to so we talked to Jan and Alec uh, back in 2016. They're making their triumphant return to the podcast to give us an update on their what they've been up to and they're because they're looking to restore and reimagine their historic Land Rover, their Series Three. And so joining us from the UK, not sure where, you'll tell us, Charles, Alec, and Jan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here again. Yeah, great to catch up with you guys again absolutely welcome welcome back so wh- where are you guys at right now so we're all uh, located in nottingham at the moment we're sitting in my parents new house we've all relocated here in the uk yeah the last time i think we talked you were here in the us right that's right when we're in virginia but now we're we're back here all together in the same same spot you moved back to the uk and uh, uh, what's what's the state of the of the of the series 3 the land rover the Series 3, um, the same one that my parents used on their trip in 1977, currently sits in a barn in France, awaiting its sort of return to what we like to say reimagined journey uh, in which it can sort of get back on the road and continue to inspire people with my parents' story. In 2018 is when we decided that it would be a good idea to do a restoration of it um, since they still had it parked in their back garden in Germany. At the time, I was still living in the U.S. at that point. So one step we thought would be helpful would be for my dad to start just dismantling it piece by piece, um, gave a good activity for him to do, and we thought that might help speed up the process. But then as we all experienced, the world turned upside down with uh, the pandemic, so that put a pause on on everything. During that time and, and soon after, we all made a move back to the U.K., and now here we are, 2022, and revitalizing the idea of restoring their Land Rover back to what it looked like at, on the trip. So I take it you want to take it out on new adventures and new journeys? Is that the is that the, the goal? Yeah, uh, I have three sisters and we all have a vested interest in continuing to travel. So I thought, you know, it'd be great if it was restored and we could take it on adventures to places it hasn't been. Um, probably not as a rigorous trip as it was back then, but it also would be great to be able to take to some of these Land Rover shows we've been attending and just have that great sort of connection between the book they wrote and the Land Rover sitting right there. It is a story truck, and I'm glad you're considering and working towards keeping it keeping it on the road and and then having it continue its journeys. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of all the Land Rovers who have their stories, um, but it's a, one that's obviously important to our family and has remained in the family for 45 years. So um, it would seem wasteful to not at least try and bring it back to life, I think. Well, why don't you remind our listeners about that 1977 journey a little bit? Maybe uh, you can give us a, a reminder of, of what happened for those not familiar with your story, like Strangers with Angels. Our book is called Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot. And that is celebrating the fact that many people you meet when you travel um, around the world are very welcoming, um, but not all. The background for the title. Yes, we went 40,000 miles through 29 countries in Europe, Africa and Asia. We crossed the Sahara Desert twice. We crossed Afghanistan before the Russians entered. And we went to the highest point of the highest road in the world in um, Ladakh in uh, northern India, 18,380 feet. 
Yeah, I'm shaking my head just because I've heard the story before, but I'm shaking my head again because <laughs> reminding of just what you guys did. That's just still stunning and amazing and fantastic. And we only had maps and a compass. We didn't have any other. Yeah, there's no GPS, no cell phones. No, no phones. We communicated with our families by letter. So they had to wait several weeks for letters to arrive. Everything was um, like recording. I mean, these days everybody records on Facebook or whatever and uh, keeps a blog going, but we just wrote in, in our diary. And from that, from the diary and letters that we sent, I wrote the book from, from the... From your, from your diaries and all, all yeah. the stories you had. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. I, again, I, I shake my head. Anytime people travel that far in a, you know, and how old were you at the time? I, I asked that. Were you, you can just like give us decades. It's fine. You were in your twenties or thirties? 25 and yeah. oh, it was 30. Yes. You see all the, all these young people doing, doing those things. <laughs> well, what, what's interesting is people are doing it now. Right. And it's become more popular and especially with the pandemic as well. Everybody seemed to be doing band lives then. And I, I always enjoy the comparison of my parents just did it because they wanted to go and see what was on the other side of the hill. Whereas now people can be inspired by each other's Instagram feeds and YouTube videos that they'll, say, hey, I want to do that too. And I guess mom and dad's book was just kind of a delayed source of inspiration that kind of came 40 years later and uh, can still be a source of inspiration for people today. And it is fun to make that comparison of a time before hashtags and GPS, really, when travel was was possibly a little bit simpler back then. You asked about how old we were. The, the Land Rover itself was two years old when we uh, did the trip. And when we bought it for my uncle, we used it to carry around pigs and potatoes. Um, so the first challenge was to get rid of the agricultural smell from it. A couple of days cleaning it up, and then set about the task of making it into a, well, a motor, motor home, our home for the time we were on the road. Which was 14 months. We, we lived and drove in the Land Rover. And just the two of you. Just the two of us. And you didn't yeah. travel with any other trucks? It was just, just the two of you and your Series 3? Yeah, we set off like that. We did have a little time, a day or so, in the Sahara. When we first entered the Sahara Desert, uh, we linked up with uh, a couple uh, in a van uh, from New Zealand. But once we got confident with the journey, um, we sort of did our separate thing. But also in Afghanistan, um, you were not allowed to cross the central route from Herat to Kabul, you could not go alone. You had to go in convoy, but that was convoy with other travellers. So we teamed up with a Swiss couple and made them our way across. But interestingly, during lockdown, uh, for something to do, I because um, we, we had actually tracked down this Swiss couple, like where their, their address was in Switzerland, and we were living just across the border in Germany. So I, during lockdown, I sent them a, a card with photos of our journey of us together with our Land Rovers and sort of said, well, you know, we're just living over here in Germany. What about, um, you know, just said, hello, how are you doing? And they were so excited that we had connected with them after 40 years or whatever. And um, so they made the trip to come to us uh, and we sat under our carport and I set the table out because it was, you know, the pandemic, we had to be socially distanced. 
and um, we each had our own food to eat that I had prepared. And we spent six hours talking about our journey. And they had brought the photos that they had taken. And we looked at each other's photos. So for the first time in 40 years, we saw pictures of our Land Rover we'd never seen before. That's that had to be amazing. That would be. <laughs> oh, is that as is, is, well that so you're as part of the your Kickstarter, you're planning a, a picture book. Will some of those photos be in the in the picture book? Yeah, they've, they've given us permission to make them as we wish, you know. Oh, nice. So they had fond memories, I assume. Yes. And, you know, because at that time when we parted in, um, we were together across Afghanistan, Pakistan, we did separately. And then we went up to the highest point of the highest road in the world together. And then into um, um, Nepal to Kathmandu and it was Christmas time and they were going to do some hiking in the mountains but we were then ready to make our way back to go back west to England so of course you know there was no exchange of anything you couldn't exchange you know they had no address there was no way of contact so we just said hi I'm you know it was nice traveling with you that's all we did so when we met again it was uh, just so interesting, the things that they remembered about our journey together. And it was, yeah, and we still, we've kept in touch since that time, of course. I think to just add to the way you found them was through oh, a Swiss oh, that's Land Rover right. club, right? That's right, yeah. We were going to a meet of Land Rovers in Switzerland near Neuchatel, which we knew was near where they lived. And we asked um, one of the guys there, is there any chance that you might be able to locate the people who had this Land Rover? In actual fact, they sold it soon after the trip, mm -hmm. but he was still able to locate. And they were fortunately living in the same address as what they had when they originally bought the Land Rover. It was, you know, it was very straightforward. They didn't hold on to their truck, unlike you guys, huh? Oh, no. And they, yeah, and it, it was sort of in the past, and they hadn't really looked at their pictures for years. And so with having us make this contact, they got them out, and they were scanning all their slides. It just was remarkable, really, because, uh, as I say, they got on with their life doing other things and hadn't really thought about the journey anymore. So it brought it all to life again for them. Dad, you'd want to share what, what happened to the Land Rover after the trip? What did we do with it? Well, we basically, two-year period anyway, we were, went to Bible school. No, no, from when we were in Plymouth, dear. We had it as a family vehicle, yeah. didn't we? For five years. Oh, yeah, okay. Seven yeah, years. Yes. Seven years. Seven years. We were in uh, Plymouth. I was chief engineer of a, a local airline. And we had our Land Rover in the back of the hangar. Owner of the airline was very happy for me to do that. And we actually changed the, took out the six-cylinder gasoline engine, which we'd done on, used on the trip, which was pretty uh, thirsty on fuel, but uh, installed a Perkins 4203 diesel, four-cylinder diesel engine, which is very old technology, good old plodding engine. But it eventually um, met the uh, emissions inspector, and uh, that was the end of that. And so from then... <laughs> kind of been in storage right well when you were when you when you were traveling was it easy to find gasoline or was it was diesel easier to find and we didn't really have any problem because it was gasoline there was all had both available one time it was quite interesting for fuel 
the um, refineries in Nigeria at Port Harcourt apparently once a year for they close the gates for a month. They don't tell anybody when they're going to do it particularly. So the whole country winds down and runs out of gas. And we got pretty close on a few occasions, you know, to running out of fuel. How about uh, finding parts and, and repairs? Because, I, I mean, you're an engineer mechanic, as I, as I recall. And did you have any yeah. difficulty finding parts and, and fixing it? We had a few minor problems to sort out, but the two major ones, uh, the first one was when we were crossing, the, we'd crossed the Sahara for the first time. We were driving through Nigeria, and it was during this time of difficult to get fuel as we were driving in along as british company wimpy construction company were building in the new road alongside that's what they do they don't repair the old road they just build a new one alongside we were out, we were sitting in the land rover um, having a cup of tea and this land this local land rover belonging to the construction company went racing past us and then we followed the direction he'd gone after a couple of miles he was there wrapped around a rock they'd not gone around the corner and there was three guys staggering about with not serious in injury but cuts from glass and they were saying wimpy camp wimpy camp and they had a road construction camp we but drove to- you, i just say you missed out the bit why we were having a cup of tea we'd been driving along and there was a loud bang from the rear end of the land rover and we discovered that the main overload spring, the bottom leaf, had actually broken. And we were having the cup of tea to figure out what we were going to do. Anyway, we did. We followed on and found these guys and took, went to the Wimpy construction camp. Jan took them off to the medical centre. And I stayed with the vehicle and was underneath seeing if any of the leaves had moved as one had broken. And the manager came along. He said, you know, what's, what's up? And I said, well, we just brought in three of your guys from a road accident. He didn't ask how they were. He asked us, what was the Land Rover like? <laughs> we didn't look too good. And he said, that's the third one that's been written, brand new ones that have been written off in a month. Well, our Land Rover, he said, what's the problem? I said, well, we've got a broken spring. He said, oh, that's not a problem. Bring it round to the garage. My guys will put new suspension on for you overnight, which they did. Two new shock absorbers, two sets of leaf springs. He said, take any of the old parts with you you want and fill up at the gas point before you leave. He said, you know, uh, said it's film night, so we had a movie night and air condition, a bungalow to stay in. Um, so we, they looked after us very well. And we went on our merry way. That's great. That, sound, that sounds like lo- rover ownership, no matter where you go. There's you know, people there to help out. It's, uh, another adventure that we had was in Baluchistan. We were traveling around uh, going around Afghanistan, and in Baluchistan, we were up in the mountains, parked overnight on our own. In the morning, I kind of checked, did the usual daily checks on it, and started the engine up, and there's water spraying out at great velocity out from the, the top of the water pump. And so it was a, I could see what had happened. There was a seal had gone. Normally, on an engine, you have a pipe which runs from the engine top, head, cylinder head to the block, called, you know, bypass hose. Well, this was a bypass O-ring. I got out my trusty kit of spares, which we bought, especially for the trip, which had in it every single O-ring seal gasket you could wish for on the engine, except that one. We resolved the problem by using a seal out of our water purifying setup, which was the same inner and outer diameter, but too thick. So I spent time shaving it down with a hacksaw and 
emery paper and put the thing in and it got us all the way back to england wow you, you had the skill you had the skill to do that i don't think i, I certainly wouldn't <laughs> So let's let's get back to the the Kickstarter and what what's that all about? You the, the trucks now. Uh, I guess you're trying to get it back to the UK and you want to reimagine the truck and maybe tell us a little more. Uh, the Kickstarter is about to kick off. Yeah, that's right. November nineteenth is when we're hoping to launch the Kickstarter project. I would definitely invite people to come and check out exploremore.com where you'll be able to find links to it. Um, but that's spelled E X P L M O R E dot com. Yeah, the, the intent with the Kickstarter project is to celebrate uh, my parents' story further and the Land Rover itself. Um, so it's kind of a, a combination of raising the funds that we might need for doing the restoration to, to reimagine it back to the way it looked back on that trip. Me as a designer by profession, also taking the opportunity with Kickstarter, it's a platform in which creatives can bring some creative projects to, to the Kickstarter community. As part of that, we're going to do a coffee table book filled with all the photos, some additional writings that weren't in the original book. And then I've been collaborating with a number of illustrators uh, to kind of bring some other creative view into aspects of their story. So on the Kickstarter, as part of being a backer, you'll get the opportunity to get rewards depending on what tier you you back us with. But some of those rewards include a tea towel set that have some beautifully illustrated pieces that celebrate um, some key moments in their journey. One being crossing the Sahara twice, the other one being them making it to the top of the world, uh, 18,000 feet. And the other one, of course, sort of highlighting the fact that they drove across Afghanistan sort of in 1977, the year before everything changed. Those are cool-looking travelogue posters. Yeah, they kind of take on a, an old um, the train. There's often train posters that you find old classic train posters. That's kind of the inspiration behind that. Can I have to ask, as an American, I've never understood what a tea towel is or what its purpose is. You don't wash dishes in in the states. Oh yeah, so yeah, we would just call that a towel or a kitchen towel. Well, that's what it is. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. But but you can use it too, uh, like a poster, like a cloth okay. poster. Okay. All right. So it goes along the lines where you call where you would call dinner or supper tea. So like tea time means dinner time. So where we would call it a kitchen towel, since since it's dinner time and you use it to clean up your dinner plates, you can call it a tea yeah. towel. I think also originally it was used to keep the kettle warm oh um, okay right <laughs> sorry sorry to, to to do that to you but i i, I just I, I hear about tea towels and I'm like i never you know i just never i i knew it took me a while to figure out that tea time was not drinking tea but it meant dinner or supper depending on whatever you call it and then <laughs> I, I finally figured that one out after a while but tea towels so the tea towels can be enjoyed on the wall or you can have them in your home or you can have them in your van or your land rover take them on journeys yeah no that actually i don't i don't think you'd want to use them to clean up your dishes they're too nice <laughs> those are pretty cool those are pretty cool yeah what other rewards are available for as part of the kickstarter yeah true books strangers like angels we'll also include a copy a signed copy of my parents original book strangers like angels with the devil with to boot but in addition to that there's also like you can get a lapel pin that as a replica of their uh, series three we also have uh, quite a fun one where people can kind of feel a part of the reimagining of the land rover um, where we will somehow get their name attached onto the chassis whether that's painting or or something we're still yet to determine that but we want people to kind of feel a part of this new chapter of its life so as a reward of backing our, our 
project, uh, one of the tiers includes, um, or several of the, the, the tiers include the opportunity to have your name on the chassis at some point. Over the course of the time, it will come off or, or something, but we'll, we'll figure those details out later. But I think ceremonially, it'll be nice to know that people backed our project and backed the story and will be a part of the, the Land Rover moving forward. And then when you and your sisters take it out on journeys again, right, then, then you can, we can go with you. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, the, 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 the intent once it's all been restored is to be able to utilize it further as a family and take it to places it hasn't been before. I think that would be quite um, interesting. And then it also would be great to take it to local Land Rover shows here and, and add to the inspiration behind the story it's a story truck it needs to be seen you need to get it out there i mean it's done it's done cool stuff exactly and and you know the fact that we still have it in the family 45 years later i think at one point it almost got sold which i'm glad that didn't happen yes me too i'm glad it didn't happen either that's good yes you gotta gotta keep that on the road i mean it's a story truck it's a it's it in many ways, it should be it was well known as Oxford is known for first overland. Not only do you say you cross the Sahara, but you get to say you cross the Sahara twice. <laughs> That's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think in contrast to like the first overland, it was just you, my parents just went out to have an event, you know, and that 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 can be made in comparison to today's explorers. Like they, people are wanting to go and see the world, and that was the same back then as it is today. It, it's got its differences, and obviously technology makes things easier and maybe harder in other ways. Jan, you guys didn't have any sponsorship back then, right? Support. You just guys went out on your own. Uh, we um, we saved for five years while we were in the army, while Alec was down in the Antarctic, and um, yeah, doing different various jobs. We saved for five years before we bought the Land Rover and set off. Yeah. Yeah. You did all, you literally did all on your own. Whereas the first Overland, not taking nothing away from them and taking nothing away from you, but you know, they had support. They, they got sponsorship. I mean, it's, it is fascinating today that travelers are able to continue it with YouTube. Once you get to a certain level and get a good following people like uh, Lee and Steph of Grizzly and, and Bear, you know, they're, they're able to continue doing this longer than what maybe you would have been able to do without social media and things like that. Like it, it enables people to continue. Otherwise you'd probably have to get a job somewhere <laughs> along the way in order to add to the fuel fund to keep going. Do you have any places that it hasn't been to in mind that you want to take it to in North America? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it, it would be cool to return to the Overland Expo or something like that and bring it. In North America, we're planning a Jubilee 70, Land Rover 75th Jubilee event, North America Clubs, and it's a date's already planned. Our, some of our listeners already know about this, but that's the middle of June in New York State. Something to think about. I mean, you know, depending on how long it takes you to get your truck back, but, you know, I throw that out at you. What year? Next year, 2023. 2023. That's Land Rover's 75th anniversary. Uh-huh. But on uh, the website, Explore More, there's a lot more background of our vehicle and of the, the work that Alec did to take, uh, you know, take it apart and so on. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures and everything on there. Try to document it as much as possible. And hopefully as it gets restored, we can document it further to kind of help share that restoration story as well. And did you say that you are... Uh, looking to hire out the restoration itself. Yeah, um, I think practically, like I'm, I'm not one to do a restoration, and I think uh, we'd like to get it done sooner rather than later, so that we can just start utilizing it. Dad's poss possibly not at an age in which it's 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 possible to keep doing that, and so 
we, uh, yeah, we just want to speed up the process. And we found a local shop here in Nottingham that we've been talking to and seeing what, what can be possible. So I think that'll, that'll add to the story as well. It's just about making connections with people. What is your goal? Looks like it's 25,000 pounds. If you reach that 25,000 pound goal, what would that uh, achieve? So, yeah, it's kind of, um, again, with Kickstarter, it's, it's, it's a balance of being a creative project. So we've got the new book that we're hoping to um, release as part of that. But then, you know, 50% of that goal will go towards the restoration of the Land Rover. And the nice thing about Kickstarter in some ways is it's all or nothing. So if we reach that goal, then all is great. But if we go over the goal, that's just additional funds that we can put towards, you know, the various phases of the restoration, I guess. And also other opportunities to, to celebrate it. Maybe we'll do like a reveal show or something like that would be quite fun with backers and invite people to come and camp and see it in person. If you, if you don't reach your goal, nobody, nobody... That's right, yeah. So and so the, the flip side to that is with Kickstarter, if you don't reach the goal by the end of the period, then you don't get... You don't get the back to the backers, which is good because, you know, you don't want to back something that's not going to actually be full. Yeah, not be fully funded. Exactly. Right. Charles is leading this. It's, it's, uh, we're not reinventing the wheel. I mean, several people that we've looked upon the, on the internet, you know, there's one, there's several, there must be several hundred people back them, but then they produce the excellent kind of BBC quality documentaries on their travel for the previous period. So, you know, they're, they're earning what they're getting in sponsorship. He's referring to the YouTube travelers you also plan then to have your adventures then further adventures would show up on youtube yeah i mean that would be it's all about <laughs> basically like the reason why i started to explore more is was a platform in which to tell my parents story help them sell the book but also it's it's developed into a platform in which can inspire and curate like today's travelers um sharing their stories using my parents story as kind of a resource for like even in the back of the book there's a list of all the items they took on their trip so it's a place in which people can come as a community um i sell primarily like a decal that people put on their vehicle just simply to explore more logo and i've sent that to thousands of places around the world and like it's amazing to see something I've designed on my computer on a Land Rover in the middle of Tehran is one of the examples or out in Japan or Pittsburgh, the, Pennsylvania. Know, yeah. Or Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just checking. It's a little exotic here. It can be exotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see that. And you know, people, it, it's one that makes people think, oh, what does that mean? And, you know, if they look it up, they'll see it's it's just celebrating that that need to go and explore more of the world and engage with people and then embrace global cultures, which uh, on a personal level, I feel like is is extremely helpful in better understanding each other. Unless you go and, and travel and see it for yourself, you're not going to fully understand what it's all about. And, and you've even joined the podcast ranks. That's right. Yeah. Um, I uh, recently have like started my own podcast called Today's Explorers, um, which you can find on, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all, all the other platforms. Um, but that is, yeah, uh, interviewing today's travelers. And basically the way I've done it is provide an opportunity for them to just share their story. Um, I ask them what inspires them to explore, perhaps what, what differences they can make between traveling back when my parents did it and today. It's fun to make those comparisons and to hear their their perspectives, basically. And, and the common theme is traveling enables people to better understand each other. What is good with the Kickstarter is the, the video that you've prepared, yeah. Charles. Yeah, if anything, go to the Kickstarter when it's up on November 19th and just watch the video because 
it uses video footage that my parents took on the trip as well. Small well, snippets. Yeah, but... yeah color slides and um, snippets of video that we took on that journey. So is the, the Kickstarter video, is that the first time that this, you know, original, I guess it would be film footage, right? <laughs> that has yeah. been seen rest of the world yeah uh, i would say a majority of yes. it there may be a couple of clips that i've pulled before for social media but um uh even me looking back at it i was like i don't remember seeing this before so that's been refreshing to kind of see something and something it combines it combines it's combined the color slides as well as the video so it all is interwoven together i don't recall you taking video when did did i miss did i forget that did you take video on the trip well we did but um charles says why didn't you take more and, um, well, we had what was the, well, the this camera? Was on film, not on. Yeah, what was the what was our uh, camera we had? Olympus Trip Thirty Five. No, no, for the video. Eight millimeter. Eight yeah, millimeter. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but the reason we didn't take a lot of video, and in fact, we actually sold the camera on the journey, was because if you're taking pictures, and we were very interested in the people, you know, you're standing there with this camera in front of your face, taking. Uh, the videos and it seemed too intrusive so um yeah we were very um we we didn't take very much but what we did take is on this little uh the information um the of our journey the camera which we took the slides on was not intrusive it was one of the first good quality just point and shoot you know you did you could just whip it up click and that's it you've got the picture you don't have to stand there and just adjusting all your three-foot-long lenses and, you know, it's taken on a simple camera. Isn't that another way the world has changed when when you were traveling? If you pulled out a camera, people would worry about their, their soul was getting taken or it was intrusive. Now people have their phones or their whatever it is, and they're just taking pictures and videos all the time, and no one bats an eye anymore. We, there's many situations which were really precious. If we'd have got the camera out, it would have totally broken the well, I remember sitting in the desert in... Algeria, I think it was, with a Bedouin or a nomadic shepherd, sheep herding family. And that was just fantastic. It was beautiful. Could have but been. we didn't get the camera out. No, we no. didn't get the camera no. out. We got some lovely shots, but we just thought it would spoil the hospitality that these people were showing us. Well, I think that's your, if you were to give any recommendation to those traveling today, Mum, you've said this before, to switch off technology and to allow for sort of that spontaneous moment to happen whether that's gps or something safety wise but like turn it off and see just what happens you might go down a trail that you didn't know was there so or even ask someone they might bring you in and, and you have an experience that you would not have known about that's right jan alec thank you very much for coming back on the program i'm gonna thank you in a second charles but i gotta thank them special because they crossed the sahara twice that's kick-ass. Yes, I swore a little bit, but that's kick-ass. And, and I'm glad you guys were back. And and uh, and, and I'm, I'm very excited that you're keeping the truck going and you're going to get back on the road. So that's very cool. Charles, thanks for what you've done to keep to keep the your parents' trip alive so people remember it and know about it. And then you're also building this community of people that are overlanders. And whether it, I guess it's not specific to Land Rovers, but still... You know, you're, you're keeping that community going of Overlanders, which is fantastic. Remind our listeners where they can find your Kickstarter and uh, when it launches and all thing all things explore more. The Kickstarter project to 
reimagine my parents land over will launch on november 19th and to around that time you'll be able to go to explore which is e-x-p-l-m-o-r-e.com and that'll board you onto the kickstarter page um, where you'll be able to hopefully back us and see more information about the project Interestingly enough, as well, on the 19th, that's the day before, we are all going to go and enjoy the Great British Land Rover show, um, where we'll also use that as an opportunity to kick off our Kickstarter project. Excellent. Tell us a little more about the Great British Land Rover show. Great British. Oh, I want to say Great British, British Bake Off, and I know. <laughs> the, great, yeah, the Great British Land Rover show is at Stoneley Park on the 20th of November. It's a Sunday. And it's unusually an indoor show, although I think there are outdoor activities with the vehicles, but indoors for displaying Land Rovers and various, well, like ourselves, displaying our book and explore more. And um, it's just a, a great opportunity to be able to interact with people who are interested in Land Rovers. That's cool. So I will have, of course, links in the show notes to explore more, and that will take you to the Kickstarter for uh, getting the, the Series 3 back on the road, which is a, it's, it's a very storied truck, and it's important that we keep that truck back on the road and starting new adventures. I think it's a laudable activity and laudable goal. As part of our publications for our book, we have it in a printed form. Uh, Strangers Like Angels with the Devil or Two to Boot is in a printed form, but we also, Alec and I, recorded an audio book, and that's actually available for free, and the link goes through Explore More website. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really fun to listen to. Oh, so you can get that on the website. It's not through uh, am, you know, Amazon or... We just recorded it as a podcast, so it was a fun two-year period of... Every two weeks, my parents would record in the next episode. I would edit it and then post it up. So it's available as a podcast on the Apple and Spotify and all those. Where, where your finer podcasts are available. <laughs> exactly. I'm a big podcast listener, so I, I'm going to download this one and add it to my list. I've got a long list of podcasts to listen to. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the program again. And thank you for your journey and sharing it with the world. Thanks very much for listening to what we have to share about our Land Rover, both in the past and in the future. And uh, we wish you well. Thank you very much for your listening to this, our, uh, sharing our memories today. On his triumphant return to the podcast, it's Alex Beskabeef. He's in Dorset, England. Welcome back, Alex. Oh, thank you, John. It's so good to be back. And thanks to everyone listening. Absolutely. It's been a little bit of a hiatus in the middle, but yeah. we are back. Yeah, yeah. What happened? It's been like three or four years. Uh, you know, did <laughs> anything go on? Did you do anything interesting? Ah, uh, you know, there was some sort of dead time in the middle. <laughs> um, well, the la- for the so listeners who don't know, let me just set the stage. Uh, uh, you know, we've been following Oxford, the first overland, uh, extensively on the show. That's how we got a connection with you. Very proud to have Tim Slesser on the, on the program. And that's the last time you were on. It was you were about to begin the last overland, which was taking Oxford from Singapore back to London. And so that's setting the stage for our listeners who may be not familiar with, uh, with uh, I don't know how uh, our listeners would not know what, <laughs> what Oxford <laughs> and Last Overland is by now, but give us a little bit about the background, how that, how that started, you know, what was the impetus and, and how did it go? 
<laughs> Gosh, big question. No, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so it was three years ago uh, and a little bit when we were chatting. I think we were just about to go. We were just about to fly Singapore to obviously the rather silly undertaking of then driving back to the UK. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who's happy to have chronic back problems for the rest of his life. Yeah, we, so we were about to go. We'd, we'd obviously, our, our intention was to recreate the first overland and to do that in the original car. Oxford, the uh, 1955 Series 1 Land Rover, this beautiful thing that had been rescued from Centralina and restored, and it's a miraculous story all on its own, by a brilliant Yorkshireman called Adam Bennett, who I know you've had on here before. Then to do it also, not just in the original car, but to, even more ridiculous, to redo it with one of the original crew, so 87-year-old Tim Schlester. And that was when we spoke, that was the plan. What happened next is we got to... Um, <laughs> Well-placement of, of an Adam phrase, what happened next was... What happened next was uh, everything, nothing went to plan, basically. <laughs> we were about to start off on our 13,000 miles, 23-country, 111-day jaunt across the world. And um, Tim, poor chap, fell seriously ill the morning we were leaving ended up getting carted straight to a Singaporean hospital. But by this time, we'd sort of set the wheels in motion. Um, we had about 2,000 people down at the, at the Singapore Grand Prix and 95 Land Rovers all lined up in a, in a big line behind Oxford, ready to go at 11 a.m. on that morning. I had to, at the very last minute, sort of with Tim's permission and blessing, was to rope in his 21-year-old grandson to, to stand in his place until Tim was better. And uh, Nat George ended up going on what can only be described as a sort of gap year of his life. Um, <laughs> an extraordinary, extraordinary substitution at the very final minute. But we, we did. I said, so three years ago and a bit, we were pulling through Singapore. They closed the streets for us. We had all these cars behind us. Singaporean police. It was extraordinary. It was quite the send off. I saw the pictures. I saw some of it live streamed at the time. It was uh, that was that was very extraordinary. Nice. I had no, I had an inkling, obviously, about the, the sort of you know the the fan base for the first Overland. You know, we'd been sort of working on the story for eighteen months, and and I I knew the sort of pedigree that I was stepping into, just you know, with with Tim, and and I never quite, even then, I was blown away by the depth of love for this story, particularly in Southeast Asia. You know that. There were people there who had who had remembered welcoming Tim home in 1950, you know, 1956. There were people that had that met Tim and had a signed book from from yeah, Tim, like the first edition. I was like stunned. I, I should say that I've uh, watched uh, the first two episodes of the uh, the show. Excellent. Even though Excellent. it's not officially available in the United States. <clears throat> <laughs> I do not condone, but I also do not judge. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yes. By the way, the TV show, I think it did a great job. I, I, the, the, I only was able to see two so far because for reasons and uh, <laughs> really cool. I thought you did a nice job. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's nice, you know, because it, it's interesting. How do you service the community, but also service uh, folks that are not familiar with Oxford and it would, you know, there, there are people in the community that would just like to uh, see the truck drive for three hours and they would be ha content with that and happy with that. No, absolutely. Well, I know, I know I was definitely, you know, taking on a sort of national treasure, an international treasure. And I was really, really sort of um, aware of that before, during and after when we're putting the book and the series together that, you know, not only were we sort of walking in Attenborough's shoes, but we were walking in, you know, sort of 65 years of, of fan club. Um, you know, Oxford is an iconic Land Rover. The first Overland is a sort of, you know, part of the, 
core texts of the Land Rover religion. I mean, you're, you know, you, you, you're, you're really uh, sort of taking on quite, quite weight. But, you know, it was, that's why it was so important, I think, to, you know, to have Tim involved and to have his blessing and to have his guidance. You know, he's an incredible filmmaker, an incredible author in his own right. And, you know, he, he advised me on, you know, film structure. He, he read my book. He read penned my book. Oh, you know, nice. front front to back. He wrote the foreword to it. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. There were lots of people we were trying to, I guess, um, keep on board in the sense that you know, like you say, like the, the the those that really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts, but at the same time to bring a whole new audience in. You know, and I think what's lovely is the range of people that have had messages from since. You know, from all over the world, men and women, you know, young and old, who've all looked into the into the show or the book and found something very different, whether that be the car story, whether that be the travel story, whether that be the story of Nat and Tim, uh, you know, that grandfather, grandson sort of dynamic, which I think is just extraordinary. And it was completely accidental, brought a depth to it. The, the historians who, who wanted to, you know, learn how the world had or hadn't changed. And it just became this like multi-dimensional caravan of craziness. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm really glad that it's now finally out in the world because there were many points, you know, in the last three years, I think I since we got back, that it might never, you know, the book might have stayed on my on my desktop as a, you know, as a Word document. The film might have stayed on hard drives. It was a hell of a slog to get them out there. But, you know, I can now sort of die happy <laughs> knowing that, like, <laughs> I, you know, we did it and the story is out there and you know, that, that people will can hopefully enjoy both the series and the book for, for years to come, I hope. So you have written a book and there is a TV show. And so the big question for our, especially our U.S. listeners is, will it be available in the United States and, and Canada? Absolutely both. I'm hoping to come over in the new year. I'm desperate to come. I, well, I've heard January 1st, actually, is when it will be officially on sale in the U.S., the book, The Last Overland. The TV show, I hope, will be very, very closely behind it. I'm doing my best. So uh, just to, for those, so I get a lot of messages from people um, saying, you know, why can't we see it in, uh, you know, here and here? And I say, I actually have no control over that. So as part of my sort of pound of flesh for getting it, getting the money together to be able to edit it. I mean, you might know this, you know, we had to sell various rights and this sort of thing to, to be able to do that. I only was able to keep hold of the UK rights. So I was only able to decide when and where it would go in the UK. Uh, I, I have sold it to, um, uh, almost pawned it essentially, to a wonderful outfit called E1, um, who they're a cracking team, you know, and this is their job. They, they saw potential in it when nobody else would, and they have taken it on now, and their job is to sell it internationally. So I've no doubt it'll be coming to the US um, at the start of the year, because and I hope, you know, I hope it does, and I hope I can come over and do some showings over there, because I know there's such a good Land Rover community in the US. North America clubs are planning a Land Rover 75th Jubilee event in June. Interesting. We already have the date. We already have the location. And we Where? just, we, uh, it's going to be in Greek Peak, New York. It's a resort. It's in Cortland. It's near Ithaca. It's near Syracuse. Uh, probably wow. an, uh, maybe an hour, hour and a half on a New York City was my guess. It's six, about six hours from my house in Pittsburgh. We anticipate having. 400 to 500 trucks, maybe a thousand people there. Oh, count me in. It's going to count be an event. In. Can I come? Oh, well, I would love to. It would be amazing. That might be, that might be something where may, maybe we could get a screening, maybe? Something. Yeah, 100%. 
hundred percent. We can do screenings. We do book signings. We could get, you know, we could get the team out together and let's see. That'd be super fun. I would love that. Maybe we get Tim to come. Well, I hope so. No, so Tim turned 91 on Is he 91 now? He's 91 on October 1st. Wow. So he's three weeks into his 91st year. Happy birthday, Tim. Oh, extraordinary, man. I mean, for those who, sorry, I know we're jumping around, but we, we did, we had, you know, after all this time, I said there were many, many moments when um, we thought that the book and the series would just never see the light of day, even though I was banging my head against the wall for three years trying to get it away. We finally, you know, after sort of months and months, we spent 10 months in the edit with the films. I spent two years writing the book and we finally launched it all at the Royal Geographical Society in London on um, September 29th. So just a few weeks ago, it was absolutely extraordinary. We had the whole place for about 700 people turned up to, to watch the first episode and see the book. And obviously the, the, the star guest was Tim Slessor. Tim has this habit of uh, sort of providing extra jeopardy uh, at the key moments. And <laughs> rather like when he fell ill just before the o- Ovan expedition, about five weeks before the, uh, sorry, about three weeks before the, um, the launch party, uh, when everything was coming out, he had a tumble outside his home. You know, he's an extraordinary sort of fit, determined man. And he goes walking every day and he just tripped up outside his home, bust his arm and his hip and ended up in hospital. Um, you know, which for anyone who knows Tim, is he's just sort of 110% vinegar and willpower. Um, you know, and <laughs> it was it was such a knock. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, if you fall at 90 years old, you know, it's the end. And this, I knew, I knew that it wouldn't be. But I thought that he's going to be so gutted because they're saying six weeks before he can get out of bed you know, and this sort of thing. And he's definitely going to miss the launch party. And I knew how much he wanted to be there. And I knew how much everyone else wanted to be there. And I wanted to be there. You know what? He discharged himself at two (laughs) o'clock on the day. Uh, He walked out on a stick, got in the shower, walked after three weeks in bed, walked into the RGS and sat down to, to a standing ovation in front of 700 people and watched this show, which he'd never seen. And on, it gives me goosebumps just telling you the story now. It was absolutely extraordinary. The man has just, yeah. he knows how to create a show, that man. Dramatic moment, you know, and it was, oh, I'll never forget it. I will never forget it. And he's fine now. He's, he's, he's had a couple more weeks in sort of, you know, with family and stuff, just recuperating. But he's now back at home living happily, um, uh, you know, by himself, looking after himself and, Oh, just extraordinary. That is extraordinary. That's that's great. I'm glad he, glad he's doing well, uh, recovering well, and rehabbing. What did he, what did he think of the of the book? What did he think of the TV show? Well, you know what? I actually just had because I've been pretty much nonstop since the 29th. I've been on tour, so I've been all over the country promoting the show and and the book. So I've barely been. I haven't seen him yet. Um, but I spoke to him on the phone, and he's fine. I said he he read the book. And as I said, he read, penned it all the way through. But it was really important for me to go through that process because for those who do get to read it, it's actually, it's very personal, you know, about him. And I said, it's, a, it's not, just a, not just a car journey, let's put it that way. And I wanted him to be happy with that as a sort of, uh, we're very different generations. And I'm not saying it's anywhere sort of millennial bleed, but it's sort of, it's very much, you know, there's more, there's more, in, there's more personal personal info on on show as you might expect between 1955 and 2019 and i did you know i was sort of i wondered how he'd like to start and actually 
he was wonderful. He really just, he's made the book, and he wrote the foreword, which means he must have. But in the show, you know what? I just had a phone call from his grandson when I was driving down here uh, because both of us had been a little nervous because Tim is a filmmaker, you know, spent 30 years at the BBC. He knows how to cut a film. And he's watched all episodes now, and he's, we've had the thumbs up. Oh, great. I think all he said was, could we have some more? Which was... <laughs> This is always a nice thing, you know, people go, well, we would like more. So I, I, I don't know how you took that, all that journey and stuck it into, it was basically four hours. I know they're like 47 minutes a piece, but only four, yeah. four episodes. Uh, that's had been incredibly difficult too. And you, I'm sure there are things you cut that you really wish you could have saved. That's, that's not yeah. an easy choice. No, and you're right. I mean, I said it, it took nine to 10 months, you know, two months per episode, basically, uh, slightly more you know, so much of that was just reducing this down and watching through the footage and then arguing <laughs> about what should and shouldn't go in. And you know, at the end of the day, you said, it, you know, you said it at the beginning, got to remember that the vast majority of people who will be coming to this don't know Land Rover. They don't know Oxford. You know, they don't know Tim. You've got to pitch the story in a certain way that gets people in fast, you know, and then once you've got them in, keeps them there. And so we are, you might see we're covering huge distances in short amounts, short amounts of time. Right. Yeah. It, it was like um, Myanmar, India done. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, there was also, you know, there's a certain, you know, you, you certainly don't want it to drag either. You know, there's no, it's always good to leave people wanting more, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, that's why I'm really proud of the book because I think the book for me gives much, allowed me to go into much more depth, particularly on the history, because that's my real passion. You know, um, I'm definitely, you know, I was a historian first and then a Land Rover fan, you know, later in life, obviously driving Oxford for four months, certainly, you know, made me fall in love all over again. And I really understand, I really get it now. I think that's what I would put my hands up. You know, I grew up in a family of fanatics and like anyone who's sort of like a teenager, you sort of rebel against what your dad it's quite the opposite of what Vicky says in episode one, you know, or maybe, you know, when you're a teenager, oh, my dad loves it. So I'm not going to love it. And I... I had the most incredible reinduction into the world and the religion of Land Rover. And I, you know, as I say in the book towards the end, I really understand that these cars above all, they come with these sort of memories. It's like cobwebs of memories all over them, you know, of, of family of, you know, my granddad had one, my uncle had one, my dad had one, you know, my brother had one. I bought this, because it was exactly the same as one he had, or I inherited it from him, or, you know, or I remember driving around with my mum in these, you know, and you, you, it's this wonderful piece of home that you can take away with you. And that for me was just what I, after four months driving around, like, and listening to story after story of people sharing their kind of come to Land Rover moment, you know, it was a, such a privilege. I, w I was struck by a couple things in the two episodes that I've seen, which is the, and we talked about this earlier, the folks that recognized what was happening and, and you had folks ready to go as soon as you entered into a country or a town, it seemed that there were, you know, Land Rover people were there. I assume you probably had some, they had some advance notice, but aside from that, I mean, that, you know, Hey, they're coming to town. That's a smart move, but it's, it's still kind of shocking to see them show up and, and, and knew when people had a copy of the of first edition, you know, I was, and then, then the house they stayed at, uh, that, that was a cottage of some sort. And you were in the yeah, same cottage that, in, that Tim and the guys were at. It was just, uh, that struck me uh, as very, and well, and well done in the, in the video. Well put Thank together. You. 
Well, no, I think that was, that was really important. It was because Tim falls out of the story physically on day one, you know, not to spoil the show for everyone. The challenge was always, or not the challenge, I mean, what I wanted to do, both while we were on the journey and then when I was writing the book and, and, um, and making the film, was keep Tim in the story and the first Overland, you know, not just Tim, but all six of them. You know, we obviously gifted with this incredible footage from the 50s, which just, it's worth its weight in gold, but the visual impact and the nostalgia and it has, you know. And so always, always when we were editing the book and the series, like, you know, we need to keep coming back, keep coming back to that. And that was also well done, by the way, weaving in the old footage with the new. Great job. That was the first thing that I, I really enjoyed. I loved how you did that. That was nice. You would you would show pictures of them and a video of them in a certain place and you'd go back to it and you show the current now. And I thought that was that was a highlight so far that I've seen. Oh well thank you. I mean, you know, our goal our goal was use every damn minute of it we can, you know, bleed it, <laughs> right. bleed it. Right. Right. Um, it was just such a gift. And, you know, as a historian, it's a, you know, that visual history for me was just endlessly fascinating to, to just, I would just sit in the edit, you know, I was there almost every single day for, you know, nine or 10 months and I just go back over and over it again. And just, you know, I'd be writing the voiceover, just thinking like, and it was funny, I was writing the book, so sort of, I was finishing the book at the same time and just sort of immersing myself in that old footage, just watching it. Cause there's no sound to it, you know, so you're just watching this silent color footage and just thinking like, my God, you know, what a different world. And, and, you know, Nat says it in episode one about his granddad saying, you know, it's really hard to think that he was our age once, you know, so it's such a, it sounds such a simple thing to say, but I found it such a profound thing to hear. Cause I was like, actually, you're absolutely right. Like, I know this guy, you know, as a 91 year old, quite frail now, old man, you know, still chill sharp as hell, but to have this footage of him and have it, on a huge cinema screen of him sort of skipping around in Thailand, you know, or <laughs> mucking about, jumping over fences in Burma. And I just, and looking at these photos, you think that's the same guy. I, I thought it's such a gift, you know? Uh, any highlights uh, that stand out for you? I, I, I know you spent a lot of time in Myanmar, and I guess you, you've lived there for a period of time, but any other highlights yeah. stand out for you? Or how about this? Anything that, that highlights that stand out for you that you had to cut? <laughs> oh, there's a lot more of, I think, people just suffering. <laughs> 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 Which I think I was just getting like post, post facto schadenfreude, just, just looking at everyone having a terrible time. No, you know what? I think the thing that was really hard to, there was a lot of time, a lot of time in workshops. And I think, you know, for, for the center steer audience, you know, I know you're, you'd probably love to see the, you know, just the sheer amount of workshops that we spent time in. I mean, you'll, you'll see in episode four, we get a real proper workshop scene and it's great, you know, but it, we just, we just, and particularly the Channel 4's feedback was, you can only have so much car nerdery. You know, that's what they would call it. You know, you've got to keep people on board, you know. And I was like trying to, like, no, but actually, first of all, I know that this is a wonderful audience of people who want to know exactly. And actually, there's another episode, episode three, with this wonderful um, DIY LPG conversion uh, in Uzbekistan, which I loved. Um, and I just, I fought for those moments that I want people to know what the car was doing, how the car was behaving and how we were dealing with it. I, I put my hands up first that I am not the most experienced mechanic, but by God, did I learn um, a lot about how to keep a series one on the road, but also, you know, the, 
the, the most incredible thing was the interactions that Oxford allowed us to have that, that transcended language. Because you get someone who doesn't speak English, but it's like, can speak Land Rover. You know, and they're like, da, da, da. And, you know, our doc, um, you know, our mechanic, the doc, Dr. Sill, um, you know, he is himself a celebrity in the Land Rover world. But, you know, the doc's English is, is, is fine. You know, it's like, he, he, he perfectly communicate. But the doc was speaking Land Rover in 23 countries and he was understood perfectly. And I loved that. It was like a universal language. So, yeah, I would love to have got loads more workshop time in because, by gosh, there was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe too much. <laughs> maybe too much. <laughs> yeah, well, when Oxford came to the U.S., there was, there was plenty of that also here. Well, I think I should say I apologize to David Shaw and, and the team because I know we, we, I apologized to him at the time because obviously uh, it went straight. I think it was in the U.K. for about two weeks before it was then put in a box and shipped off. And obviously Oxford was carrying all the battle scars of four months on the road and sticky tape and this sort of thing. And I never got the chance to actually, I think, do the work that we, we should have done. And then I know that what the guys, David and the guys did, um, first of all, was give her kind of intensive care, um, you know, the poor old girl. Um, but it was so good to see her ride again so quickly even you know through covid and that i thought just the tenacity of david and the guys was wonderful couldn't couldn't given that she was a bit crippled uh i think couldn't have landed in better hands yeah yeah well it's it uh, it's been limping along i mean we it, 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 it limped along through <laughs> here more than limping. i mean she's been skipping through new zealand australia yeah it's again it's good that adam bennett has allowed the world to experience and 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 enjoy uh, oxford and i was very privileged to be able to drive it for a period of time and that was uh it was very exciting well it would not have happened without him yes none of this would happen without absolutely him. i just say the book is already i'm delighted to say a bestseller uh here in the uk uh, which is wonderful. I hope it. I hope it repeats the trick elsewhere. That would be nice. Well, there certainly is a lot of interest here in the U.S. for for Oxford. I guess actually oh. that's one thing I thought of in in, in seeing the video in, you, in your TV show and talking about Oxford. Oxford and the first Overland was never really that big here in the U.S. prior, because you know Land Rovers mm. were low on the totem pole of uh, car ownership here in the U.S. Sadly. It's something we need to change, but yeah. Yes, well, you know, Jeeps are big here. That's uh, that's where they started, <laughs> and uh, they're still uh, they're still still a thing. There's a there's a Bantam Jeep Fest just a, an hour north of me, because that's where Jeep started, up in Butler, Pennsylvania, near uh, Pittsburgh. So, yes, yeah. If I find that interesting. I don't know that you would have gotten the same general populace coming out to see Oxford as it would drive around if it had done the same trip, say, through the U.S., because that, that whole all that history is not here for uh, for the first overland. We're trying to fix that. Yeah. I mean, there is another great journey that I would love to to obviously perhaps recreate. Is the you know the nineteen seventy one to uh, Blashford Snell, um, the Darien Gap. I mean, what a what a journey that is. I actually had the great privilege to to sit on the, that car the other day. Um, Phil Bashall from the Dunsfold Collection popped down to a festival I was speaking at, and I. I got to uh, I got to sit on it. There is obviously there is Land Rover pedigree if you scratch the surface, but I said that was the great blessing I think of you know being able to recreate the first Overland and to start in Southeast Asia because we forget that obviously you know the, the world has changed so much since 1955. Singapore was a British colony as was Malay Malaya you know and obviously we we um, 
talk a lot about decolonization and these negative legacies. But what we saw down there, obviously, was the passage of time had been so great that actually there was this fondness for both the car, the story, and it sort of transcended any any sort of post-colonial grief, I think. And, you know, like you say, like, it, it didn't matter that it was Brits and whatever. It just was just a bloody great adventure at a time when the world, when exploration and, and adventure was still something that you could really talk about, you know. <laughs> the idea of exploration in the 21st century is something very different. To be able to sort of bring back those ghosts, it was just such a, yeah. A blessing, I would say. Absolutely. It was, and it was inspired to go in, in to have a kind of return Oxford back to the UK. I think that was a, an inspired way to, to, to handle well, the, the Tim's over. idea. Oh, was it? Tim's idea. It was Tim's idea, yeah. So where can folks find the book even? Uh, I guess we could get it off of uh, Amazon out of the UK. You can get it on Amazon. You can. I'm, I'm sure they will ship. It will be in stores from January. And I will update you guys as soon as I have those. Obviously, if people want the best news, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at The Last Overland, please do. There's also, if you go on our website, there's a mailing list. And I very, very sparingly update that. I don't abuse people's inboxes. I only send anything out when we have some sort of solid news to share about events or um, you know, new showings, where the book's coming, where the series is coming. So if people want to be first to know, please sign up to the newsletter. Well, I said I hope to be out myself in the States in sort of the first quarter of next year. That would be cracking. And then if not for June, that would be amazing. I think you should strongly consider June. I think consider it strongly considered. You will have a very <laughs> captive audience uh, and a very engaged audience. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Well, John, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, all of you, for, for sticking with this journey. I know it's not often that you could people have the patience to... I guess, you know, three years to wait for the for something to come back. But I guess people were waiting 70 years. <laughs> so, yeah, what's three? What's three? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thanks very much. We appreciate you coming back on the program, giving us the update. And uh, I'll have links, of course, in the show notes to all this. So thanks very much. Alex. My pleasure. <laughs> Cheers, John. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed show number 115 for October 2022. Want to thank Alec and Jan Foreman and also their son Charles for talking to us about the Kickstarter and trying to get their series three restored and back on the road. It's a, you know, it's a story truck that doesn't have as much of the uh, notoriety as Oxford does, but I think it should because it's it's done a lot. It, you know, they've crossed the Sahara, not once, twice. Exactly. <laughs> How many people can say they crossed the Sahara? And then twice. And while it didn't make it to Antarctica, Alec did. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. right. And if we get it back on the road, maybe it can finally find its way down to Antarctica. Maybe maybe it can get there before uh, Oxford does. We should have a little, little race. I'm, I'm not in control of anything, but that'd be a cool idea. And also thanks to Alex Bescovy for joining us to talk to us about the final overland and the upcoming book and the television show. If you are in North America, there are ways to watch the television show. I do not condone, nor do I encourage you to use those methods. But having seen two episodes uh, so far, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. It's tough to thread that needle between being engaging and also servicing the, the Land Rover enthusiasts, but I thought they uh, did a pretty good job uh, of doing that. Yeah, and I look forward to the, the book. You know, we obviously we could order it from Amazon UK or something like that now, but I look forward to the, the U.S. press of that or release of that book. 
I'm sure that the uh, the red pen copy that <laughs> Tim Tim went over for him is probably a prized possession at this point. And thanks to you, Morgan, for coming on the on the podcast. Also, can't forget that. Well, thank you for having me, as always. And to the One True Packs for his continued production support, making us uh, sound well, I hope. Because when I do the editing, I'm reminded I need to stay close to the microphone. Sometimes I don't do that while I'm speaking. Visit our website, centersteer.com, to listen to previous shows and for show notes, which have links to stories discussed in today's podcast. We post a new podcast at the end of every month. You can connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, and voicemail. You can directly support the show at patreon.com slash center steer. You can buy us a t-shirt sticker or buy us a tea. Uh, click on store on the menu of our webpage. If you have an idea for a guest, send us the details and contact in information. If you have it, we do appreciate those in honor of Land Rover's 75th anniversary. You're now invited to bring your Land Rover specifically series, specially series and defender owners, Freelanders too, Range Rovers, Discoveries, 1s, 3s, 4s, 5s, to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in 2023. You now have... Eight months. Eight short, short months. And you also have seven months to prepare for Anarch's Diamond Jubilee. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and what you're up to in your Land Rover. Until next time, I ask you to share the show with one other Land Rover enthusiast. You may now resume your important things. It was just a bloody great adventure.